We're in a series right now called The Gospel. And uh, we've got this tagline across the bottom. And the tagline says, Beauty, horror, love, wonder, mercy, wrath, God. And I want you just to think about those two first words just for a second. Beauty and horror. And, and that seems strange combination, right? You don't normally think of those two in, in the same like concept. But, but that's where we're going this morning. Is I, I really want you to, to feel that angst between the beautiful message of what Christianity is all about is the fact that God loved you so much that He sent His only Son. That is an unbelievably beautiful thing. To do what? To die a horrific death. And those two things have to sit in, in a kind of a tension in your mind, have to sit there so that, it, that they both have to resonate with you. If you let just the beauty go, you're going to forget the great cost that it, that it took, and you're not going to take it seriously. Like, it's just a kind of a beautiful thing. There's a lot of beautiful things. If you take just the horror, you'll never, never get over self-loathing. You'll never get over just kind of, of this, uh, I'm not worthy, and you're always just, just not really standing up strong and saying, here am I, send me, as we see the people of God end up doing. So it's both. And if that's a tension within you, good. Because it should be a tension within you. We're right now, in this series, we're taking the first five weeks of it to do something we're calling the raw gospel. Just the meat and the potatoes. Just give me, you know, I, I just want the, the basic message of what Christianity is all about, the gospel, what's it about. We're going after those things. Last week we started that out by saying it starts with a look at who God is. And we looked at two people. If you remember, first was Isaiah. And Isaiah, the, the calling of Isaiah into his, his public ministry or into his prophetic ministry, Isaiah gets this vision. And the first thing he sees is God. He looks at God and he sees him as holy and majestic and awesome and powerful and all good in every category. And then the next thing he does is he looks at himself and he says, I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm undone. I'm undone. Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the king. And then there's forgiveness. Remember that we don't really understand how a coal from an altar could do that. It's a precursor. It's an understanding of what later is going to happen. Clearly, when Christ comes as a sacrifice, but he doesn't understand at that time. He just touches his lips and he's cleansed. And then... The phrase, God says, well, who will go for us? Who will be our messenger? And Isaiah then says, here am I. Send me. I want to get my cleats dirty. So it's all that. You see that? They're right there. Beauty and horror right there. And we moved over looked at the, the apostle Peter and how Peter came to follow Jesus. And Jesus does this miracle with him. And he realizes, you know, he, he knew Jesus was special. But when Jesus does this miracle... Now, miracle to those fishermen was that they actually caught fish, which is kind of a funny story all in itself. But they catch all these fish, and, and they realize there's no way that this would have happened normally. And, and the first thing out of Peter's mouth is he looks at Jesus and he says, Get away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. And Jesus goes through that same process with Peter. He says, Don't, don't be afraid. From now on, you'll catch men. And what does Peter do? He leaves everything and he follows him. And, and that's, when we look at it, there's four parts to this basic raw gospel. You see God, you look at yourself, you notice the difference, so there's a problem. You see the amazing solution that's in the cross of Jesus, and you respond. So if you just want it in four words, I know we did the tweet thing, you guys did great. I would do it in four words. That's not complete, but it's God, period, us, period, Jesus, period, response, period. That's the basic message. That's the raw gospel. This week, I want to talk to you about that second one, a clear realization of who we are. And uh, uh, I'm going to shoot straight with you this morning. This is going to be a heavy message. Um, <clears throat> and it's hit me hard. <clears throat> so all week, all, all, <laughs> really it has. And uh, uh, um, So... I just want to buckle your seatbelts here. <laughs> my goal for you, my goal for you, I'm just going to tell you right up front, my goal for you is that you'd see how sinful you are. And I'm not pointing fingers at anybody. 
The reason why I want you to see how sinful you are is so you see how beautiful this is. And if you see yourself as a person who just occasionally has made a few mistakes, this is not really a big deal. But if you see yourself as a helpless sinner, a hopeless sinner, this is awesome. So that's where I'm going this morning, and I, we'll, we'll see what happens. Well, first start off by asking the question that the great theologian Pete Townsend asked, who are you? <laughs> Pete Townsend, Roger Dolly, Keith Moon, anybody? Anybody? Oh my gosh, come on. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Up there. Yeah. Can you, your walker's okay? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'm with you, brother. I'm with you. I'm with you. First concert I ever went to was the Who's Farewell Concert Tour in 1982. <laughs> How's that? Yeah, farewell number one, farewell number two, farewell number three. So we're going to ask the question, who are we? So if you've got a Bible with you, we're going to start in the book of Genesis. We're going to look at the first three chapters of Genesis, and then we're going to go ahead to the New Testament and look at Romans chapter 1. That's what we're going to head at this morning. We're going to start by asking the question, who are we? And, and we've got to start with, and this is where a lot of people, um, I think a lot of people, if you come from the Reformed camp, you start with uh, this, this Calvinistic thing called tulip, and you start with T, which is total depravity. It's actually the wrong place to start. Um, that's not, that's not all we are. I mean, we're going to get to that. Uh, but, but let's say we're created by God. And there's something we have to understand here. Otherwise, you won't understand the tension. So if you've got a Bible, you get to Genesis 1. Let's look at this creation story. Genesis chapter 1. So the first chapter of the Bible, verse 26. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and of the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, I'm just going to make some observations, and I'll, I'll make a list here in just a second so you can, you can see kind of more where this is coming at. But there's something going on here where God is speaking within the Trinity, and he says, let us make man in our image. He's going to create a male and female. We talked about that a few weeks back. And, but he, there's something about being this likeness or the image of God, a reflection of, or it's supposed to somehow represent God. Not, not, we're not God. He's not creating God, but he creates something that's in the image of God. All right? Then you go down and he says, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. I want to really appreciate all of you that are uh, fulfilling this passage, by the way. <laughs> Fill Hope community in every possible square foot of it. In uh, <laughs> every kid's room we know, including an old locker room. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, verse 29, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it, they will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air and all the creatures that move in the ground, everything that is breath and life, that I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. All right? So God creates people, and he creates them, and he even says they are very good. They are created in the image of God. They're given a, a task to do. We'll, we'll, we'll open that up here a little bit when we get to chapter 2. So God creates this. You are fundamentally started. You are created by God. Okay? Now, if you go to chapter 2 of Genesis, it's a little bit of an expansion of certain portions of what Genesis 1 is talking about. How, or not so much how, but kind of more details on the, the, the rationale or what's going on with the creation, especially of people. So go over to chapter 2 now, and we're going to look at um, just for verses 15 to 18. And see a little bit more. And I'm not going to go through this whole story because we did this a couple weeks ago. I just want to kind of remind you about this. This is, this is, what was their job? What was their duty? It says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. 
And the Lord commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. Then verse 18, the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. So what's going on here? This is, this is interesting. So uh, he says, first of all, he gave them a job. He gave Adam a job, and he said, I want you to care or tend the garden and care for it. So work is not the curse. That's not the curse. He's, that we're given purpose. We're created with the purpose. That's a good thing. And then he says that uh, he actually is giving him choice, volition, whatever word you want to use here, a will. Because he's saying, you are free to eat from any tree, but just not this one. So this is the way they're created. Then he says, it is not good for Adam, the man, to be alone. Why? You've got to stop and ask, why is it not good for Adam to be alone? Because, remember what God's doing? He's creating them in his image. Now, I'm not in, in 30 seconds here going to explain the Trinity to you other than this. I certainly could if we had more time, but we don't. So, I won't. God exists as one in eternal community with the Son and the Spirit and the Father. That's about all I know about that. So, it uh, pretty much is, I'm going to be honest. It pretty much is all I know about that. But there's something about being in community that needs to be reflected in us. So it communicates God. So God creates community. Creates another person. Okay? So, if you look at this, the Latin phrase for image of God, people like to throw Latin words around. Imago Dei, or some people pronounce it differently. That's close enough. Imago Dei, which means image of God, it means these things. Theologians have said it means at least this. It could mean more, but it means at least these things. Number one, that we are rational people. That there's been something given to us that we think and we reason along that's a, a bit different than the animals and, and, and different uh, uh, plants or whatever. Uh, we, we just reason differently. Second thing, we have volition. We have choices. We make choices all the time. In fact, life is a series of choices. You are choosing right at this very moment to not stand up and talk to your neighbor, or even though it seems like you don't, you don't, you're choosing right now to do different things constantly. Life is a series of choices. Third thing, you are relational. You were created for relationship. Fourth thing, you are emotional. There's something within you that is, goes beyond... Uh, it goes beyond everything that you... Un I, 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 love, I love the line. I know it sounds silly, but I love the line from uh, uh, Jim Carrey and uh, the Grinch. Grinch Stole Christmas, or what was it called? Uh, what, was his, what was his deal called? Uh, what was that? Jim Carrey, the Grinch, right? Yeah. Um, anyway, for the first time, he gets this emotion, and he's crying, and he goes, Max, I'm leaking! But, because you, you're created for that. I mean, maybe not the leak, but you're created to... You're created to have this emotion. It's a, it's, it's a part of you. It's, it's who God is. God's emotional. Okay? That's what, at least what it means. It could mean more than that. Then, if you just want to summarize, what's our purpose? Why are we here? We're here to, 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 tent, to rule, the, uh, rule the earth, right? I give you everything. You're to steward the earth. And then it says we were created to tend the garden and to care for it. That's what originally was our plan. And then, be fruitful and multiply. Be blessed. Have these large families that have large families and, 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 and originally, now small is fine too, but, uh, but there's this idea of just blessing and, and community perfect. And every person in your family you would have a perfect relationship with. And the tending the garden, it needed tending even in its state before sin enters the world. And that's our job. And life, we're created to live there. We're created to live where that's right. Where all my relationships are right. And I work 
and nobody comes and graffitis my work, and, and, and different things don't happen to that work. It just continues good, and I make advancement, and the advancement is, is good, and it continues, and I don't live there, and you don't live there, and you've never lived there for one millisecond. Once in a while, you get a smell of that, and it feels like, wow, that's the way things should be, but you never get a chance to actually reside there. Why? Because Genesis 3. What happens in Genesis 3? Flip over one more page to Genesis 3. And again, we went through this a couple weeks ago, so I'm not going to hit it in detail. What's the problem? How do we get into this mess? Genesis 3, you, you know that they were tempted to go to that very tree. To go to that very tree. And there's this interaction with a serpent who represents Satan. He's tempting her to go to that tree and to eat the fruit. And then you see what happens. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked. Before that, they were just naked and happy. But now they realize they're naked so they sewed fig leaves together because for the first time in their life, shame hits. They never knew what shame was like. Can you imagine? Just no shame. No shame. You know? And made coverings for themselves. And if, if, you've, ever, if you ever have a kid, a little kid, it is fun to watch this process because they start out with no shame, right? And I, I remember uh, our, our youngest who would like to get stripped down to his diaper, sometimes diaper, and get on top of the table and dance. <laughs> and it was the greatest. It was the greatest to watch him do that. I'm trying to get him to do it now, but at 14, there's no way, right? There's no way. But this, but this uninhibited, I'm down to my underpants, and I'm just going to dance. We don't do that. Why? Because that's shameful, right? And that's, that's what they felt for the first time. We're naked. That's not okay. And so not only physical nakedness, but emotional nakedness. Oh my gosh. I laughed funny. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> Who cares? Well, I care. Because that's not okay anymore. Or any other kind of nakedness is no longer okay. They were naked in every area of their lives and it felt fine. And for the first time in their lives, they realized they're naked. And it's not okay and so physically, they, they cover up, but every other area they cover up too, emotionally, intellectually, volitionally, everything, there's all of a sudden this, everything changes. Everything changes at that moment. God comes, and he pronounces what happens as a result, and the curse is given. And he starts with the woman, and he says, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. Remember what the, remember what the blessing was? Be fruitful and multiply. Have families that are a blessing, and now they're going to come with pain, and raising children is going to be difficult, and there'll be strife. And he, he hints at it here. He says, with pain you'll give birth to your children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. you gotta, when you read this stuff, you've you got to read it as if you're, the, you're, you're Adam and Eve. You don't even know what these words mean. What does the word pain mean? What does that mean? What does it mean that he will rule over me? What does it mean there'll be strife? What, what, what is that? I don't even know what that is. And all of a sudden you go, oh my gosh. They actually knew what it was not like. And then they got into it. So these were created to have relationships. And part of the curse is you'll have none that are perfect. The only perfect relationship I have is my relationship with God. And that's only halfway. And I'm letting you figure out which way is the correct way. There's no other relationship in, in, in my life that is the way it should be. Secondly, the curse is given to Adam, and he says, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground. So sin enters the ground, the earth, because of you through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. So what was supposed to be a pleasing thing, something that was going to give satisfaction, there would, there would be no rust or different things to come and destroy it. it would, everything I did would be satisfying work now is going to be constantly filled with thorns and thistles and weeds and different people trying to knock it down and other people trying to take your job and different things going on constantly. That's what life's going to be like. 
It will produce thorns and thistles for you and eat the plants of the fields. By the sweat of your brow, you'll eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. They were created to live. And come now comes something called death. It is the most unnatural thing. Next time you go to a funeral and somebody comes up front and says, oh, we really loved Aunt Martha, but we all have to come to the acceptance that death is a natural part of life. I give you full permission. And you can stand up and say, my pastor said I should say this. That's stupid! (laughs) Death is not a natural part of life. I miss Aunt Martha. I don't have an Aunt Martha, but if I did, I would miss Aunt Martha. Something's not right when Aunt Martha dies. I wasn't created to die, and people die. Don't give me this, oh, we just got to come to acceptance. No, I wasn't made that way. Neither were you. That's why it feels so weird. So what happens? Because of this, now we live in a world, this is where it gets, this is where I wanted to go to the beginning for. I want you to feel this tension. We live in a world we're not designed for. We're designed by God to be in His image, to be in perfect relationships. We're designed by God to have this purpose in our lives that will do things and they'll meaningfully matter. And and nothing is exactly the way it should be. Listen how it ends here. It says, if you keep going in Genesis 3, Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, uh, wife and clothed them. That's amazing grace, by the way. That, That God actually would... Not just zot them out right there. If I were God, the Bible would have four chapters. You know, creation, creation kind of explained again, how people sin, and this wonderful chapter of glory of how I destroyed everything. (laughs) You'd be very thankful that I'm not God, okay? (laughs) Note to self, one more thing I'm happy for. Pastor Steve is not God. Thank you. Um, It's not what he does. It's not what he does. He's incredibly, in his discipline of them, he's incredibly graceful. He's incredibly graceful in what he's going to do next, too. He says, the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. That sounds, to us, that sounds silly. Wait a minute now. You're saying to me that it would not be a blessing for God to give you whatever the fruit of the tree of life was so that you could live in the state you're in right now forever? How is that not? It's because we're so acclimated to this. If you had two and a half minutes in the way it should be in the Garden of Eden, you would know why God won't let you live forever like this. And it's gracious. It's gracious. He says, I'm not going to let them do that. In fact, not only am I going to let them do that, I'm going to kick him out of the garden. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim. In other words, there's, there's spiritual forces keeping Adam out, Adam and Eve, out of the garden. And my contention is, all of our lives, what we really desperately want is to get back in the garden. Because I'm designed to live in the garden. That's where I want to live. So what we'll do, because we can't find this garden, is we'll create it whatever we can that will substitute it. I'm going to get a great job. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get married and have 2.3 kids and, and live in a certain size house and have, drive a certain size car. And, uh, or maybe I'm going to do things that aren't good. I'm just going to get really stoned and I'm going to have a lot of women and, and I'm just going to have a lot of kids and I don't care about any of them because I just want to feel really good. I don't... I don't it doesn't matter how you manifest it. It really doesn't. It really doesn't matter how you manifest it. What you're craving deep inside is to go back there and you will create all the false gods and all the false religions and all false things. Maybe even some of you sitting right here that have gone to church all your life, you've got complete false gods because what you want to do is get into the Garden of Eden. So who are we? We are, we are a mess. And here's why we're a mess. Number one, we are created in the image of God. You're still created in the image of of God. 
It is a distorted image now because of some of the, the because we're, because of the next word I'm going to, well, I'll just get it now. We're also fallen, okay? So this is tension. This is tension. I'm created to have perfect relationships. I really desire them, but I can't have any because I'm the problem. I'm fallen. I'm not right. I have this propensity to do things sinfully and in a way that is not pleasing to other people and to God. And, and I just do that because that's just kind of the air I breathe. And, and it just, it's tension. We're created in the image of God, and yet we are fallen. So, how does this escalate throughout the Old Testament? I'm just going to pick one verse, okay? <laughs> it escalates. It's brutal in the Old Testament. There's moments of glory, but mostly brutal. And it escalates. By the time the Old Testament ends, about two-thirds of the way through the Bible, by the time it ends, the people that God has chosen for his own people have completely turned their back on him and run away. If you remember last week, we talked about uh, Ten Commandments, Moses on the, on the mountaintop, getting the great experience of seeing God in amazing ways. The first commandment, remember God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt. The first commandment is what? The first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, I would argue that every other commandment is just uh, really just fleshing that one out. <laughs> but, I don't want to get into an argument with you if you disagree with me, even though you're wrong and it's part of your fallenness. Ooh, ouch. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, but the, the, that whole thing, you shall have no other gods before me. First thing on God's mind. First thing on God's mind. Why? Because he's got a complex and he needs to be worshipped? No, because he designed you. It's like saying to an automobile, you shall not run on anything other than octane. Please do not pour sand down the gas tank. Stop that. No, super glow will not work either. But we are committed to filling that gas tank with other stuff. And God says, no, you don't understand it. You're designed to run on me. Don't fill it with anything else. How does that... Look at this passage from Jeremiah. He says this. When it finally comes down to this, and it's, it's, a, it's a huge indictment. He says, has a, has a nation ever changed its gods, yet they're not gods at all? But my people, basically he's, he's ripping on the Israelites and saying, you know all these nations that you're a part of? You know the false gods that they have? They aren't even departing from them. You know, you got the Zeus or something, you know? Look at, they, they got Zeus, and they still got Zeus. You had the true God, and you're going, hey, check out Zeus. Or check out somebody else. Or check out the, the golden calf or whatever. It says, even though they're not gods at all, but my people have exchanged their glory for worthless idols. And you you gotta you got hear the they've exchanged their glory and what it means. It's it's like it's like a wife saying to a husband that and, and saying, Man, I just I think you're I think you're my glory, I think you're my beauty, I think you're really satisfying. And, and what I'm going to do is, you know what? I'm just going to exchange you for a magazine or for some image of women, pornography or whatever. I'm just, yeah, I'm just going to do that. That's what's going on here. He's like saying that just they've exchanged their glory for worthless idols. And this is what he says. Be appalled at this, O heavens, and shudder with great horror. There's the horror, declares the Lord my people have committed two sins. It's a passage worth memorizing. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. That's the definition of sin. By Jeremiah's definition. Jeremiah 2. What's the definition? Rejecting God as the one who you're meant to run on Him, you're meant to follow Him, have a relationship with Him, obey Him, and you reject Him, but you are religious. Everybody's religious. You will worship something. And so you go find something else. No matter what it is, you'll find something else. And you'll put it in there. And it doesn't quite satisfy, so you try more of it, or you try something else. 
And it can be a good thing. Children. Children. I want to have a kid. That'll satisfy me. No. I have three of them. You can borrow them for the weekend and I'll prove that, okay? Uh, They're really bad gods. They don't satisfy you. So let's have more. Or, 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 okay, or it could be, quote unquote, bad things. I'm just going to be one of those people who just get stoned all the time. I'm going to do every kind of drug possible. I'm going to get wasted all the time. I'm just going to live a hedonistic lifestyle. I want to sex, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, whatever I feel like doing. You talk to people who live that lifestyle. I want to college people who live that lifestyle. You ask them now in their 40s and 50s, hey man, are you happy? <laughs> They're not happy people if they're still alive. Okay? You're going to fill it with something. And that's the definition of sin. Okay. I know what you're thinking. Those of you who've, who've uh, maybe grew up in the church going, dude, that is so Old Testament. That is so... But I want to talk about good stuff. Come on. Happy bunnies. Let's go now. Let's talk about the New Testament where it gets good. Okay? Let's do it. Let's get after the phrase gospel. The Apostle Paul loved the word gospel, uses it all the time. There's probably no book of the Bible that he unpacks the gospel more than the book of Romans. In the book of Romans, I believe it's used 12 times throughout the book, but just in the first chapter, I think it's used six times. Could maybe miscounted that, it's five or six, in the first chapter alone. So I want you to see, how does Paul want you to feel about the central message of Jesus, the central message of the Bible the central message of what Christianity is all about, what does he want to get across to you? So you start with, in, Genesis, or excuse me, in, in, in Romans 1, and he's going to use this phrase. He's already used it uh, one or two times in chapter 1. He says, I'm eager to come and preach the gospel to you in different places. By the time you get to verse 16, he says this, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. First for the Jews, and then for the Gentiles. And that follows the Old Testament, saying it's not just for the people of Israel, it's for everybody. But it's first for those people, then for everybody. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. So it's like, that's good stuff. That's good news, right? Gospel means good news. Cor's going to unpack that next week, somewhat. We got really, we're going to unpack that all the way through Christmas, what that whole phrase, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. When you start to wrestle with that phrase, the righteousness of God, what it means that I have righteousness from God, not on my own, I don't work uh, for my righteousness, but I work from it. It's one letter difference, but it will change your life. Uh, we're going to wrestle through those things. I'm not going to hit that now, but it just sounds like good news, right? It's good news. This is great. The righteousness of God is revealed. Awesome. Next verse. How does Paul want you to feel this gospel? He wants it just not to be a mental thing. He says, dude, I want it to just hit you like a ton of bricks. What does he say? First words out of his mouth. The wrath of God is being revealed. That's what he says. How you doing? (laughs) You know, holy smokes. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Now, I love the book of Romans, and I'm going to spoil it here for you a little bit, but I have to just for the sake of time. Paul is going to trick you. He's going to trick you. Because what he's going to do is, he's going to lead you through Romans chapter 1, and you're going to say, yeah, you're right about those people. Jeez, those people. They're really messed up. And by the time he gets to the middle of Romans chapter 3, he's, you're going to realize he means you. Now, I know, maybe I spoiled a little bit, but you kind of need to get that because don't point your finger at somebody else. Paul is talking to you, and he's talking to me. He says that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness of wicked men who suppress the truth. That's an action. They're holding it down, holding truth down, purposefully holding it away by their wickedness. Since what has been uh, known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen from what has been made uh, so that men are without excuse. If you had nothing else but a tree, it's enough to scream to you 
There's a God, and I'm suppressing that truth. Now, we have a lot more than that. We have the people of God, the Spirit of God, and the Word of God. But if you just had a tree, it'd be enough. For although they knew God, here it is. Here's the two things that happened. They neither glorified God nor gave Him thanks. Those are the two things. Didn't glorify Him. That means put Him in a place where He receives the glory and I get the joy. And never do I try to switch that so I get the glory. Or I just say, thank you, thank you, thank you. I'm unworthy of this, but I just thank you that you gave it. Nope, I didn't do that. They neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Jeremiah 2, right? What are they doing? They're exchanging one thing for another thing. But this makes it even more conscious, dude. It's like they're saying, hey, I got an idea. Let's have a trade. I'll trade you God for something else. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And here is what I would choose. If you were to ask me what my definition of sin is, I would choose this verse. And worshipped and served created things rather than the creator. Wow. Anything like that. Anything like that. Let me tell you from where I sit what that means. From where I stand. Okay, As a pastor, I just came... From being in Seattle, I was around pastors all over the place. You know, a bunch of church planners, all that kind of thing. Let me tell you how pastors can do that. Pastors can worship and serve created things rather than the creator very easily. How large is your church? Well, I guess it's a little larger than yours, isn't it? <laughs> Ooh, I'm not quite as big as yours. Well, did you start your church from scratch? Or did you have help? How much money does your church bring in? Is there conflict within your church? How many churches have you started? Da, 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 da. Are those all good things? You're darn right, they're all good things. And they all can become an idol that goes deep within me and, and latches onto pride. And I, wanna, I want to be glorified. It can just reach within there. And it's like, oh my goodness, I'm slipping into this. I think when you first become a follower of Jesus, and you get over the big sins. Oh man, I'm not, I'm not addicted to porn anymore, and I'm not drinking every weekend, and I, I'm, I'm treating my girlfriend now with respect. We're not having sexual relations in, anymore, and oh great. And then you go down the road and you realize what the Bible calls the worst sins are: pride, jealousy, bitterness. I'm not saying go back to that other stuff. Don't hear me say that. But we get this idea that that's, what's, what it's, that's what it's out there. And the reality is, what God really wants to work on is, we're some of the most arrogant SOBs on the planet. And it's sickening. The fact that we as Christians look down at anyone on the planet means we don't get the gospel. Because this is me. This is you. Look what Paul goes on to talk about then. He says, because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with one another, other men, and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. So Paul goes after homosexuality. And some of you in the room are going, I don't wrestle with that. That's, yeah, really feel bad for those people that wrestle with that. Some in this room do wrestle with that deeply. Paul doesn't pick, Paul's not picking you out for any other reason than he's saying it's natural versus unnatural. This is a terrible argument against homosexuality, by the way. Paul just assumes that you believe it's wrong. He's just trying to use it as an example showing how that something happens now, something is happening now where we have these desires and we go places we don't want. Paul could have used anything. He's going to in just a minute. Those of you who think, 
I don't, I don't wrestle with homosexuality. Yeah, you got your heterosexuality completely figured out? Anybody? <laughs> Just see somebody raise their hand. Uh, I don't. I don't. So for me to look down on anybody who's wrestling with any sexual issue means I don't get the gospel. I don't understand it. Problem is not homosexuality. The problem is, problem is exchanging. The problem is exchanging the creator for creation, and all of a sudden, sex becomes my idol. I have to have sex. I gotta go after that because I'll feel really good and I'll feel really wanted. And God says, "I created sex, one of the greatest things in the on the planet, to be an illustration of marriage, which is an illustration of oneness." And what my relationship is meant to be for you. It's an analogy. And it should lead to worship. Not, not uh, some kind of crazy bedroom stuff. That's the point. And so, you can be completely heterosexual. You can be completely in marriage. And be completely sinning in your sexual life. Because you, you think it's all about just you. And pleasure. It's not. This stuff runs deep. I'm sorry to bring this. I know this is heavy. Um, if you go back one slide, go back one slide. It says, what happens is all of this. It says, therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires. You see that, that phrase? That phrase should just freak you out. What does he say? It says, God gave them over. Do you remember verse 18? It says, the wrath of God is being revealed, is, not, will be. Because when we think of the wrath of God, the, the anger of God, you think of, ooh, it's going to come and there's going to be punishment and he's going to just trash the earth. It says, is being revealed. And how is it being revealed? It's being revealed right there. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their heart. What does that mean? That means that God says, basically, if you keep looking at me and slapping me in the face, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to worship you. I'm not going to worship you. I want to do my own thing. Let me go. Let me go. Let me go. Guess what he says? Go. He says, go do whatever the hell you want to do. Now, some of you in the room are more upset that I just said hell than the fact that you're going and doing whatever the hell you want to do. That's what sin is. It just grips and it takes you. And God says, finally, go. The wrath of God, go ahead. Furthermore, verse 29, since they do not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do which not ought to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. And here's the full list. They're filled with envy, murder, strife, deceit, telling people white lies, malice, enjoying tension in people, enjoying getting after them. They're gossips. They don't go to the source. They go to other people. Slanderers. Well, I used to go to this church, but it's really messed up because da, 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 da. God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. It's interesting he throws that one in there because it's like, oh, oh, shoot. <laughs> it's also the first verse my kids memorized. Uh, <clears throat> they are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless, although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death. They not only continue to do those very things, but also prove of those who practice them. Now, I'm going to give it away here a little bit because the time you get to Romans chapter 3 and Coral maybe will lead you down their path next week. He's talking about you. Let me reread this sentence then. Although you know that God's righteous decree uh, says that those who do such things deserve death, you not only continue to do those very things, but you approve of those who practice them. What's the raw gospel? The raw gospel is you look at God and He's awesome. And you look at us and I am treasonous against Him. And so are you. 
you're hell-bent on doing your own thing. Whatever it is. I will go do this. I will seek after this. I will do it. And the wrath of God is, go ahead. You want it? Go ahead. And you think, great. The raw gospel doesn't go any further if you look at God and see Him as holy and majestic and seeing yourself as making a couple mistakes. You've got to see yourself as the Benedict Arnold here. You're the bad guy in the story. But the beauty of the gospel, the reason we're here, is because that's not the end of the story. It is completely hopeless, and you are completely helpless. You, the, you just watch the Titanic go down, and you're in the water. And until you feel that you're in the water, getting close to hypothermia, and going down for the third time, you will not get Jesus. Jesus is just a nice thing you wear around your neck. He's a nice, he's a nice, uh, 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 you know, he's a nice good teacher. He brought great moral teaching, starts this religion. No, Jesus came to save your neck when you had no hope, no hope. And he comes and he saves your neck. And that's what Cor gets the pleasure of talking about next week. And that you see this dot on the distance and it's a light and you think, what is that? And it gets bigger and bigger. And it's another ship to save you. Until then, you know, Jesus just, yeah, Jesus is okay. I mean, that's great. I'm glad, yeah. No. I'm in a world of hurt without him. So let me close by asking you something. Are you horrified by your sin? Are you horrified by your sin? A book that's become meaningful to us here at Hope is a, is a, is a work by John Owen. And um, he writes this. He says, what have I done? What love, what mercy, what blood, what grace have I despised and trampled on? Is this the return I make to the Father for His love, to the Son for His blood, to the Holy Ghost for His grace? Do I thus repay the Lord? Have I defiled the heart that Christ died to wash, that, he, that the blessed Spirit has chosen to dwell in? And can I keep myself out of the dust? What can I say to the dear Lord Jesus? How can I hold up my head with any boldness before Him? Do I account communion with Him of so little value that for this vile lust's sake I have scarce left Him any room in my heart? How shall I escape if I neglect so great salvation? In the meantime, what shall I say to the Lord? Love, mercy, grace, goodness, peace, joy, consolation. I've despised them all and esteemed them as a thing of naught that I might harbor a lust in my heart. Have I obtained a view of God's fatherly countenance that I might behold His faith and provoke Him to His face? Was my soul washed that room might be made for a new defilements? Should I endeavor to dis dis disappoint the end of the death of Christ? Shall I daily grieve the Spirit whereby I am sealed to the day of redemption? He's talking as a Christian. Some of you in the room are wrestling through this whole stuff for the first time and you're seeing Jesus as a lifeboat. He's talking about saying, what? Christian, I'm the one who needs the gospel. Yes, I'm saved, but I'm being saved. I need Jesus. Jesus is everything. So with that said, and I'm going to talk about this in depth in two weeks, but I can't leave you here, okay? <laughs> I'm going to ask you, what do you do with sin? You repent of it. And you don't do four things. I'm just going to hit them real brief just because of time. Number one, you don't downplay your sin. Number two, you don't worship your sin. And that means you don't define yourself by your sin. You repent of your sin. Don't get caught up in the opposite of downplaying it is letting it define you. Third thing, to get out of it, you just think, I'll just try harder. I'll get another, I'll get another uh, 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 filter for my, for my computer. Get a filter for your computer, great. But repent of it to Jesus. It's not behavior modification. And lastly, don't try to repay God. 
Don't try to repay Him. The beauty of the Gospel message is that it's free. That Christ came to die for sinners. Let me close with this quote by Tim Keller. And I won't do it. I'll save that other one a different time. He says, The Gospel is that I am far worse than I imagined and simultaneously more loved and accepted by God than I ever dared hope for because of Jesus' death for me. Which takes us to this. If you get what I was talking about, this represents the body and blood of our Lord Jesus. It's a representation. But we're toast without this. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus Christ, you are sweet. You are so sweet. And all week long I've been thinking about the weight of my own sin. I know sometimes I just almost think it's funny. There's nothing funny about what it cost you. God, I want to hate sin. God, I, 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 we want to be a church that hates sin. Realizing we're never going to be perfect. Realizing we're always going to struggle with it. And realizing we have a Savior so we don't need to. So God, I pray for people in this room. I pray your Holy Spirit would do its work. That they would confess. That they would turn. They would repent. And come to Jesus. And that Jesus, you yourself, would come and minister to them deeply. And forgive. And heal. And cleanse. And give us new life. So that we say, here am I, send me. Or we leave our boats and follow you. Pray in your name. Amen.